Well, good morning, church. So good that we can come to God's Word this morning. You didn't show up to listen to my words. That wouldn't be worth a whole lot. But what God's Word says to us as I try and and explain it to us this morning, it's not going to be easy words, but words I think that are very relevant and appropriate to our lives. And apparently, apparently there was an article in a U.S. newspaper objecting to the new trends in church music. It listed several reasons for opposing it. It said, one, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. Three, the new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Fourth, because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. Fifth, it puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. It went on to say that this new music creates disturbances even among people, so they act indecently and disorderly. They said the preceding generation got along fine without it. They said it's a money-making scene, and on and on it went. Now, you might think that that is content of an email I might have received in the last 20 years. Well, this article, this article was said to have been written by a pastor in 1723, attacking Isaac Watts, the writer of the great hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World and Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. (laughs) You see, worship wars are nothing new to our time. Over the years, there have been, you've likely seen it, church and denominational splits over the issue, personal strife, relationships broken, causing those in the church to bitterly quarrel and those outside the church to kind of look at the church with contempt. Some churches are fighting for traditional forms of worship and others are fighting for contemporary forms of worship. The traditional people accuse the contemporary people of being superficial, and the contemporary people accuse the traditional people of being irrelevant. Worship wars, for the most part, are a thing of the past, but it can still show its ugly heads. See, we think traditional or contemporary, those are our categories. God has his categories when it comes to worship. Acceptable and unacceptable. Acceptable and unacceptable. The way God evaluates our worship goes far deeper than the outward forms we prize so fiercely. All right, with that, look with me at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, and introduces this subject for this morning. Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verses 10 through 20 is our focus for this morning. We're we're three weeks into our new sermon series in the book of Isaiah that addresses the question of why are we here? Why are we here on this planet, at this time, in this region? That's the question of great relevance to us today at Living Hope, for we must never ever lose sight of our purpose in the world at such a time as this. We are here for something much bigger than ourselves. Or as Bonhoeffer so aptly put it, the church is the church only when it exists for others. The church is the church only when it exists for others. 
The people of Judah that Isaiah is writing to had forgotten that they were called to know God and to make God known. And the book of Isaiah, God addresses the nation which had lost its way as to its existence. Why were they there? Why were they chosen by God? And Isaiah's message to God's people, particularly the two tribes of the southern kingdom referred to as Judah, is one both of judgment and hope. We'll see that all the way through Isaiah. Judgment and hope. Isaiah's ministry, which covered a span of about 54 years, was for the purpose of warning Judah that their fate would be the same as the ten northern tribes who were taken away into captivity earlier by the Assyrians. And after Isaiah calls them dumber than an ox for forgetting they need God, he now addresses their empty worship. And even more insulting than insinuating that the people of God are inferior to an ox and a donkey, he lumps them in with the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their their behavior was as repulsive as those two cities, yet because of God's grace, they would not be completely wiped out as those cities were. That's where he ended last week. Well, in Isaiah 1, verse 10, where we pick it up today, Isaiah speaks the word of the Lord to the people of Judah, and he begins by referencing Sodom and Gomorrah again. Look with me in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, obviously, Isaiah is not speaking literally to Sodom and Gomorrah. They've been non-existent for years. No, no, he's comparing Judah, the people of God, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that the people of God were no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. That was highly offensive. And the people may argue, oh, no, 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 no. We're we're nothing like those two cities. We have our religion. We have our worship practices. And God addresses what he thinks of their religious activities as we come and pick it up in verse 11 and following. And 11 through 14, I'm going to read here in a moment, it is laced with sarcasm. The people had sunk to an all-time low, yet they thought by carrying on of their religious duties, they were okay. Now, as I'm reading verses 11 through 14, you'll see there's a lot going on in these verses. That's kind of the point. It's almost wearisome to read. It's like his pace is like really fast. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 11, follow along. Multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than burnt, enough of burnt offerings, rams, fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. My first point this morning in answering one of these verses saying, my first heading is endless religious activities don't impress God. Endless religious activities don't impress God. It's as if the people are saying, any problems we may have, 
are more than compensated by our, our splendid worship here in Jerusalem. And God speaks to what they're doing in verse 11 is what? The multitude of your sacrifices. God's saying these are your sacrifices. And they might get a little defensive here and say, what do you mean our sacrifices? God, you came up with this form of worship, not us. We're, we're just doing what the book of Leviticus tells us to do. No, no, God, these are your sacrifices. God turns it back on them and says, well, what are they to me? In other words, all these endless religious activities, they don't impress me one bit. In verse 13, these sacrifices are called meaningless offerings, or literally, offerings of nothing. Now, what might constitute offerings of nothing? Well, there's even stronger language in verse 14 as to what God thinks of their worship. He says in verse 14, my soul hates it. God hates all of it. And when we think of what God hates, our worship practices likely would make that list. Taking of a life, God hates. Pride, God hates. A lying tongue, God hates. Divorce, God hates. Idolatry, God hates. And then there's a form of worship, God hates. Verse 14 goes on to say that what they're doing has become a burden to God. He's even weary of bearing them. Would you ever imagine that it'd be said of God that he's actually burdened by something we did? (laughs) Their worship activities, they're, they're like this dead weight to him and God's tired of carrying it. And I read that and I go, God, why is that strong language here? Why does God hate their practices when he's the one who set up all these feasts and these religious holidays and and these sacrifices and the offerings? I mean, what's the problem? The people of God, they were making regular trips to the temple. They were dutifully bringing their offerings to God on the altar. They were enjoying and celebrating their feasts. They were celebrating religious holidays. But you see, somewhere... Somewhere along the line, they began maximizing the physical aspects of religion while minimizing the reality of knowing God. The problem was not the sacrificial system that God had set up. They had lost the heart of worship. Outward activities replaced inward holiness. It became form over function. Think about worship, wars, and dislikes. It's over form. God says, this is what's unacceptable to me, function. In Isaiah 29, 13, God says to the people of Judah, these people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. See, they look religious. But their hearts were far from God. They were going through the motions. You going through the motions? Am I going through the motions? I mean, can can it happen to us? Reminds me of two elderly women. They were out on a Sunday drive, and as they came to the intersection, maybe you've heard this, but the stoplight was red, and they just drove right through the stoplight. The passenger thought to herself, I must be losing it. I could have sworn we, we, we just went through a red light. A few minutes later, they come to a second intersection, and the light was red, and again, they drove right through. 
This time the passenger was quite sure the light had been read, but was still concerned she might be losing it, so she says nothing. She pays closer attention as they come to the third intersection, and sure enough, the light was definitely red, and sure enough, they drove right through. The passenger can't take it anymore, and she said, Helen, did you know we just ran through three red lights in a row? You could have killed us. And Helen, startled, turned to her and replied, oh, am I driving? <laughs> That's going through the motions. But have you ever done that? I mean, not through going through three red lights. But I wonder, I've gone down from my house to here, and I've gone down Morrill and Stark, and I get here, and I go, I don't really remember driving it. Hope I didn't go through any three red lights. The routine, it becomes, the room becomes so much routine to us, we hardly give much thought to going from point A to point B. We can do the same thing, church, when it comes to our spiritual routines. I mean, you ever been thoughtless in your prayer? I have. I mean, ever began a prayer with thanks for the food, but it wasn't mealtime? You just kind of went autopilot, and you go, oh, wait a minute, that's, that's later. Ever gone through the motions in your worship? I mean, if we aren't aware of it, that an infrequent occurrence can become a habit, are we going through the motions? Do you find yourselves thinking, you know, anything's good enough for God? Well, Stephen Charnack, who put it this way, said, without the heart, it is not worship. It's a stage play. It's an acting of a part without being that person, really a hypocrite. We may truly be said to worship God, though we lack perfection. But we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. See, more isn't necessarily better if our heart isn't in it. Endless religious activities don't impress God. All right, second point this morning is true worship is never separated from life. True worship is never separated from life. Look with me at verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Now, why would God hide his eyes and block his ears? Well, the end of the verse tells us, your hands are full of blood. Now, here's the picture. The people are coming to God in this outward form of worship, and their, 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 their hands are outstretched in the air. They're looking up to God, and as they're looking up to God, hands outstretched in the air, they're not even seeing the blood on their hands. And the blood on their hands, really, it's, it's using a hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. And probably not literally blood on their hands, but it should have been obvious to them that there was this disconnect between their public worship and how they were living the rest of their lives. They should have looked up and went, it's not, this is not right. See, true religion, one that pleases God, is never separated from the rest of life. And that's what they were doing. These worshipers had a religion that was not affecting their behavior. And God says, enough. See, if your religion does not work in the particulars of everyday life, it doesn't work. And so Isaiah mentions some of their particulars to why there's blood on their hands in verse 17. Look with me, verse 17. Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now, these may be direct words to the rulers and kings in Isaiah's day who were not upholding justice as they should. 
I mean, verse 23, I think, clearly makes that point. It says, your rulers and rebels, companions of thieves, they love bribes, they chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And so, this is speaking here to fatherless and widows who could not even get hearings in court. They were cast to the side. They wouldn't even listen to them in court. And they didn't have enough money to bribe the rulers. And he's saying here, the rulers, the nation, had failed to carry out their responsibility to uphold justice. Because then justice to the helpless was on God's heart. The fatherless and the widows, not cared for, is a critical issue from God's perspective. And all the people are implicated in the injustices around them. It's not just the rulers. They too, all the people, have blood on their hands, for they have become indifferent to what was going on in society. She calls out to the man on the street, songwriter Phil Collins writes. Sir, can you help me? It's cold. I've nowhere to sleep. Is there somewhere? Can you you tell me? He walks on, doesn't look back. He pretends he can't hear her. He starts to whistle as he crosses the street. She's embarrassed to be there. Oh, think twice. It's just another day for you and me in paradise. Oh, think twice. It's just another day for you and me in paradise. She calls out to the man on the street. He can see she's been crying. She's got blisters on the soles of her feet. She can't walk, but she's trying. Oh, think twice, because it's another day for you and me in paradise. Oh, think twice, it's just another day for you and me in paradise. Oh, how we can live in our own little paradises and ignore the real problems around us. Will I move out of my comfortable place? And you've got to work out what that means for you. Will I move out of my comfortable place, my my house of ease, my paradise, and see the helpless around me? Work that out. Because what does that look like today? I mean, how can we be the voice of the helpless? There's many ways we can do this. For starters, I'm going to give you one way because it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. Let's consider the unborn. It's appropriate to use this as an example. It's very fitting to this year. This was a statement by one of our government officials. This is what they said. It is a human voice. It is a human voice. We must not let those voices be silenced. Not for today, not for tomorrow, not for as long as this country stands for the principle, the people must be heard and heeded. To what voice was he referring? Well, it was back in December 2000, 2000, when the court stopped the recount in the Bush-Gore presidential election. Remember that debacle and that mess? Yeah. The human voice that must be heard there was referring to a paper voting ballot. Okay. Sure. But why is it okay to silence the voice of the unborn, yet be so adamant about not silencing the voice of a paper ballot? Church, we must be that voice. We must look to be involved in those ministries that speak into unplanned and unexpected pregnancies, what, what that means for you. Think that through. Pray that through. Those, those places, those ministries that offer assistance to those seeking to terminate their pregnancy and to help those who have already done that so we can have some compassion and not be judgmental. We should stand up, for the, for up, up, the, stand up and hold up the dignity, the dignity and beauty of human life, all human life. 
goes beyond the unborn. So we cannot disconnect our religion, our worship from the practical needs around us. That's what he's getting at. I believe it was Peter Kreef that said, on my door, there's a cartoon of two turtles. One turtle says to the other, sometimes I'd like to ask why God allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. And the other turtle replies, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. <laughs> Gulp. Montanimola was a prominent pastor in Germany during the time Hitler came to power, and he became an outspoken critic of Hitler's ideas. He kind of was converted to that. He wasn't always there. But he's most remembered for his post-war statement. Likely you've heard it. He said, first they came to the so- for the socialists, and I-, I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there's no one left to speak for me. See, the point is, the point is, again, you got to work this out. What are we doing about the helpless? What are we doing about social injustice? I don't want to just get sidetracked in that, but it's part of the gospel. How do we speak up? in a healthy, constructive way for the helpless. I mean, do, do, do I weep? Do I pray for the unborn? Do we extend a helping hand to the elderly? How do we regard those less fortunate, those with special needs, those around us that we consider less than us, not the same as us, whatever that is for you? How do we regard them? See, to treat people unfairly in their helpless state is an offense to God the Creator. To defend the cause of the helpless and plead their cases to value people, to value people as God does. Doesn't the New Testament touch on the same nerve? James chapter 1 verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. The point in all this is that the helpless of great concern to God. And true worshipers of this God express that concern through acts of compassion. Our worship on Sunday, here's the point, cannot be disconnected from the particulars of everyday life. As we saw in the very first week in our study in Isaiah. Isaiah, he, he looked up, right? And then he looked around. We have to look around. If we don't, our worship is at war with God. Now, God's not after just some fine-tuning of our outward worship. Verse 16, notice what he says here. He invites him to come clean. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. See, true repentance is not only about doing, about stop doing wrong, also start doing right. It's both parts. Stop doing wrong, start doing right. What does that look like? Well, here's the bottom line for this morning, my third point. Here's the bottom line, though. Worship is never a substitute for obedience. It flows out of it. Worship is never, ever a substitute for obedience. It flows out of it. And we see God's invitation as we come to verse 18, which is really a hinge verse here. It looks to the future. As I said, throughout Isaiah, we'll see both judgment and hope. Well, here's some hope. The people of God can turn this thing around. 
God offers a way out. He always does. So look at me at verse 18. Might be familiar verses to you. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. And in other words, he's saying to them, come to your senses and be reasonable. Then to consider their future and, and choose the best way to go. Come, let us reason together, he continues. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, they are as red as crimson. They shall be like wool. See, reason would say, Come clean with God and receive his forgiveness. Repent and turn in his direction. He will give forgiveness. He's calling them to repent of their empty worship. He's calling them to repent of their apathy, their indifference, and change their disposition toward him. Because worship is unacceptable unless it's the overflow of repentance. Broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51. And that's why Isaiah says here in verse 19, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. In other words, eat or be eaten. Change your ways or be devoured by them. Enjoy the blessings of obedience or accept the consequences of a superficial religion. That's meaningless. So, living hope. Come now. Let's reason together. The better way is to obey God and be blessed. The better way is to do away with all the pretenses and be transparent with God. The better way is this self-awareness of soul issues over just going through emotions of cultural expressions and styles of worship just so that we can save face. Church, do the reasonable thing. Worship is never a substitute for obedience, no matter what that sacrifice is for you, and coming here this morning, or maybe what you've done this past week, it can't cover over greater areas of disobedience. While browsing the internet, Rob Smitty developed an interest in, in, in people that needing organs. So Smitty donated one of his kidneys to a stranger. It was a noble and generous sacrifice. He, he said his motivation for doing that involved doing something that would make his children proud. But his 10-year-old daughter wasn't impressed by his sacrifice. 10-year-old Amber said her father never comes to see her and never calls, not even on her birthday. She says, I don't think he's much of a hero. Tennessee records show Smitty had not made child support payments to Amber's mother in nine months. See, just as 10-year-old Amber is not impressed with her father's sacrifice, God is not impressed with sacrifice that takes the place of obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22. It's on the screen. Does the Lord delight in burn offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? No. To obey is better than sacrifice. See, God's not looking for us to relate to him through mere religious ceremonies, but rather inward holiness, to do the, do, do deal with the, the matters of the heart. One writer said, because religious ceremony tends to put God in the past, to become magical, to be man-centered and man-pleasing, to make God familiar and to blur his moral demands, it's a positive threat to the kind of relationship with God that Isaiah knew was possible. You see, the people of Judah, which can happen to us, had a flurry of religious activity, but was absent was the heart of true biblical religion. What 
have the people become? Devoted, yet ungodly. Devoted, yet ungodly. And Walter Martin's Screw Tape writes again, which is a takeoff on uh, C.S. Lewis's, but Screw Tape writes again, senior demon. Screw Tape writes to his junior tempter, uh, nephew Wormwood. And he says this to him. You must arrange to make him, meaning Christian, you must arrange to make this Christian a devout Methodist or devout Baptist or devout Presbyterian or devout Episcopalian or what have you. Make him that devout. He must come to accept the church as a type of religious social club where people congregate, nothing more. In a word, Wormwood, help him to become more religious, but for hell's sake, not more Christian. What have we become? I mean, what have we become in our homes, in our professional influence, in our deepest thoughts? What have we become? You see, what we do is important, church, it is. But, but so is why we do it. And if we aren't careful, I say we, We can start to measure our spirituality and others' spirituality by outward expressions. Oh, you do this and this and this? Okay. You got it. And if we aren't careful, like the proverbial frog in the kettle, we can slowly do all the right stuff, but all for the wrong reasons. We can go through the motions while our hearts start slipping away in apathy. It's been said the nice thing about apathy is you don't have to exert yourself to show you're sincere about it, (laughs) right? Because you're apathetic. What does God want when it comes to our worship? Change in in our attitudes and disposition. It's It's been said, if your religion doesn't change you, then you should change your religion. Change taking place in my life. Is it show? Is it outward? So I get all that stuff right. And along the way, this isn't always there. Is, is there change there inwardly? Are we, are we looking for ways to show compassion, to stand in for others for justice, to act in kindness to those who can't pay you back, might not even thank you? I mean, as of late, would God consider your worship, my worship, acceptable? Have we been treating God more as a good luck charm or Lord of our lives? Do you know that for about $6, you can buy a four-inch plastic bobblehead Jesus that bounces on a metal spring and adheres firmly to the dashboard of your car? I didn't know it was a thing. One advertisement for this product says you can stick him where you need forgiveness and he'll guide you through the valley of gridlock by putting him on the dashboard of your car. Really? Apparently, a few years ago, I must have missed this one, the dashboard Jesus had become a cultural phenomenon. You might know the song by Billy Idol. He sings, Plastic Jesus, with my plastic Jesus, goodbye, and I'll go far with my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Well, apparently, when I was looking this up, Paul Newman sang it in the movie, uh, A Cool Hand Luke. And the words begin, well, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. (laughs) 
See, to lots of people, Jesus and, and church and Christianity, they're the cultural trappings, but not life-changing realities. Author Josh McDowell said it this way, he warns that people today see Jesus like a plastic statue on a car dashboard, smiling, robed, a halo suspended above his head. That's all I need. But that superstitious or sentimental view of Jesus, it's a myth. It's not important whether you have Jesus on your car's dashboard or fish stickers all over your car or whatever else you want to do. That's not, that's not the important thing. It's vital to know God and live our days for Him. He, he, he isn't this plastic. He isn't plastic. He's powerful. He's not small. He's infinite. He's not a good luck token. He's the risen Lord of time and eternity. Church, He wants my obedience, He wants my heart. He wants your obedience. He wants your heart. Is our worship deeper than the songs we sing or even the hands we raise that it invades every aspect of my life? I know these are tough words. Hear it from the word of the Lord. and Let's see what God wants to do with it in your life. And in mine. Let's pray. God, this is not easy to preach, not easy to hear, not easy to prepare. But it is your word. Breathe out from your mouth. Through Isaiah to the people of Judah and the people in his day, but for us today. This is relevant. There's something we can grab from this. It may not be the whole thing, but there's something we can grasp in this, and I pray that we grab it, allow it to change us, that we're not just going through the motions in any area of our life. Stop us when we're doing it, so our heart can catch up with it. For your glory and for your praise, in Jesus' name, amen.